This is a Tuesdays with Merton bonus episode from the archives of the Thomas Merton Center at Bellarmine University. Scott Russell Sanders presented Reading Merton in the Rain on June 16, 2017 at St. Bonaventure University for the 15th General Meeting of the International Thomas Merton Society. And now, Scott Russell Sanders. I'm not a Merton scholar or any sort of scholar. None of those awards David mentioned or for scholarship. I'm not a Catholic. I'm a writer. I'm a writer actually sort of like Merton, a compulsive writer. Nobody I know have ever read is as compulsive as Merton was. But I'm in the ballpark. (laughs) So what you're going to hear is an essay, and it's an essay about how Merton entered my life the sort of stories that the Daggy scholars were sharing last night. And the title, Reading Merton in the Rain, as you'll hear in a moment, if you haven't read his essay, Rain and the Rhinoceros, that's where the title comes from. It was not a prophetic allusion to what would happen when I arrived at St. Bonaventure. (laughs) So here's Reading Merton in the Rain. Until recent years... The sound of rain has always filled me with a sense of blessing. Rain drumming on the tin roof of a Tennessee farmhouse, my first home. Rain pattering on the canopy of oak and maple forests in Ohio, on forests of pine in Maine and Vermont, on reeds and rushes in Louisiana bayous, on spongy nurse logs in Oregon, on tundra and stone in Alaska. From earliest childhood, I would tingle with anticipation at the rumble of an oncoming storm. I would shiver with pleasure as rain tapped on windows and gurgled through gutters. And I would dash outside to rejoice in the thrum of rain on my umbrella or on the hood of my slicker. I heard in these sounds a promise of green grass, sweet corn, flowing creeks. It was the music of abundance. When preachers in the rural Methodist churches I attended as a boy spoke of grace, I thought of rain. This enchantment helps explain why I was immediately drawn to an essay called Rain and the Rhinoceros, which I read for the first time as a junior in college. I knew nothing of the author, Thomas Merton. I gathered from the opening page that he was a monk, where he mentioned having come from a monastery to a cabin in the woods. More intriguingly, he spoke of hearing in rain, as I did, a voice that sent a shiver up the spine, a voice older and grander than the human prattle of markets and gadgets and games. The essay begins with these sentences. Let me say this before rain becomes a utility that they can plan and distribute for money. The time will come when they will sell you even your rain. At the moment, it is still free, and I am in it. I celebrate its gratuity and its meaninglessness. The word gratuity rang true for me because back then I thought of rain as a pure gift, 
like sunshine, like consciousness, like life itself, calling rain meaningless, also seemed apt. For in those days, I believed that rain was immune to our designs and desires. The blurry photocopy of rain and the rhinoceros was given to me by a college chaplain whom I had gone to consult, who had gone to to consult about my troubled conscience. It was the spring of 1966. I was 20 years old. Like many men of draft age, I was struggling to decide whether, if called to serve, I would fight in Vietnam, where 200,000 U.S. military personnel were already deployed. Could I join the effort to kill strangers in a poor country on the far side of the world simply because a few officials had defined them as enemies? I was also debating whether I should give up the study of physics, which had fascinated me since childhood. Could I devote my life to a science that was heavily funded by the Pentagon, which regarded physics as a source of knowledge useful for devising ever more lethal weapons. I don't recall what advice the chaplain gave me, except that I should read Merton's essay, which might help me distinguish between the loud voices outside me and the quiet voice within. (laughs) One of those quiet voices of... (laughs) from the outside. During our talk, a rainstorm had blown in. So after I left the office, I took shelter under an archway where I sat on a bench and began reading. When I finished, I felt as though I had spent a long evening with this renegade monk as he said vespers in his cabin, cooked oatmeal on a camp stove, toasted bread on a log fire, and reflected on the teachings of a 6th century hermit. I fretted along with him as a strategic air command bomber passed overhead, its, quote, red light winking low under the clouds, skimming the wooded summits on the south side of the valley, loaded with strong medicine, very strong, strong enough to burn up all these woods and stretch our hours of fun into eternity. All the while, Merton listened to the rain, and I listened with him, hearing, as in stereo, his rain in the Kentucky woods and mine under the grand elms of a college green in Rhode Island. All the while, I shared his pleasure in solitude, which offered a refuge from the pressures of a society obsessed with buying stuff, having fun, and waging war. My upbringing had instilled in me contradictory views of war. During my early school years in the 1950s, my family lived on a military base where bombers flew training runs overhead, tanks roared about on maneuvers, and soldiers cruised the roads in olive drab jeeps. I read war comics, watched war movies, and played for hours on end with miniature plastic GIs. 
My father had worked in a munitions plant during World War II, and my uncles had flown bombing missions over the Pacific. The president was a military hero, Dwight Eisenhower, honored for commanding the forces of good in triumph over the forces of evil. All of these influences led me to imagine that wearing the uniform of my nation and fighting our enemies was an exciting, courageous, and righteous calling. On the other hand, I had been taught the Ten Commandments in Sunday school, including the stern warning, Thou shalt not kill. As a Bible-reading youth, I had memorized passages from the New Testament in which Jesus praises peacemakers and instructs his followers to practice forgiveness and to shun violence. Merton's essay brought to mind several of these passages, foremost among them the emphatic teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And you all know this passage. Jesus speaking, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you salute only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Recalling those lines in the midst of a spring shower, I was pleased to think of rain as a symbol of universal benevolence, nurturing all life without distinction between just and unjust, good and evil, friend and enemy, without distinction, in fact, between humans and trees and toads and the rest of thirsty nature. As a boy, I had not been forced to choose between my infatuation with, my, with war and my admiration for Jesus. But when I spoke with the chaplain in the spring of 1966, a year prior to graduation when I would become subject to the draft, I could no longer ignore the choice. By then, I had put away my toy soldiers and lost my taste for war movies. Night after night, watching TV news, I had been sickened by the carnage in Vietnam. I had listened to speeches and sermons by Martin Luther King Jr., had read Gandhi's autobiography, had read essays by Tolstoy and Thoreau, all advocating nonviolence. Yet I was reluctant to declare myself a conscientious objector. What held me back? The answer came to me, as the chaplain no doubt hoped it would, from reading Rain and the Rhinoceros by this man, Thomas Merton. Among the few plays I had seen in live performance before starting college was the one alluded to in Merton's title by French-Romanian playwright Eugene Ionescu the play Rhinoceros. Written in 1959, it tells the story of a village 
in which all except one of the citizens succumb to rhinoceritis, turning into belligerent beasts that rush about recklessly following the herd. The lone holdout is a man named Berenger, who refuses to become a rhinoceros despite urging from his best friend, who rejects what Merton calls the moral standards of society in favor of the law of the jungle. There is nothing heroic about Berenger. Indeed, he is a drunkard and a 'er ne'er-do-well. Yet he is brave enough to defend, again, this is a quote from Merton, the human individual against the violent mob. By the end of the play, his is the only face on stage not hidden behind a rhinoceros mask. I thought about that play a lot in the past year, watching TV treatments of certain campaign rallies. Watching Rhinoceros as a high school senior in the winter of 1963, I took it to be a satire on fascism, communism, and other mass delusions that only foreigners fell prey to. Three years later, when Merton's essay reminded me of the play, I knew better. I knew that Americans could succumb to herd mentality and mass aggression as readily as people anywhere. I had read about our history of genocide against the native tribes, about the hostility directed at each new wave of immigrants, about the interning of Japanese Americans during World War II, about the anti-communist hysteria of McCarthyism, about slavery and the enduring scourge of racism. In Rain and the Rhinoceros, Merton invoked Ionesco's play as a caution, not merely against totalitarianism, but against all forms of, quote, collective thinking, especially those that derive their power from channeling contempt toward people defined as other. This is Merton. Collectivity needs not only to absorb everyone it can, but also implicitly to hate and destroy whoever cannot be absorbed. Paradoxically, one of the needs of collectivity is to reject certain classes or races or groups in order to strengthen its own self-awareness by hating them instead of absorbing them, end quote. Those lines inevitably made me think of the Holocaust, For personal reasons, I also thought of the Armenian genocide during the First World War in which members of my Assyrian grandfather's family had perished. I recalled how the demonizing of Germans and Japanese civilians as well as soldiers had prepared for the firebombing of Dresden and the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I thought of white segregationists assaulting peaceful black demonstrators in the South and of the U.S. military gauging success in Vietnam by the daily body count of enemy dead. The moral response to collective aggression, UNESCO implies, is to refuse to join the herd, even if, in doing so, one risks being ostracized or attacked. 
The problem of Beranger, Merton wrote, is the problem of the human person stranded and alone in what threatens to become a society of monsters. Beranger is indeed alone at the end of the play, scorned by his former friends and liable to be crushed if he stands in the path of the stampede. For Merton, he exemplified, quote, the isolated conscience, defying, quote, the mass mind. It's hard to hear one's conscience in the midst of a stampede. That was why early Christians often withdrew from the hubbub of cities and villages to the silence of the desert, as did the 6th century hermit Philoxenos, whose writings Merton was studying by the light of a Coleman lantern. The need for solitude was why this renegade monk had retreated from his monastery to a cabin in the woods. This is how the essay ends, however. Yet even here, the earth shakes. Over at Fort Knox, the rhinoceros is having fun. By the time I read those wry closing sentences there under the archway amid the music of rain, I understood why the chaplain had thought the essay might help me choose my path. Unlike Beranger, I was not stranded and alone, since by the spring of 1966, opposition to the Vietnam War had begun to swell. But I had grown up in the rural Midwest among people who considered military service to be the duty of every red-blooded American male. When the nation was at war, only cowards refused to take up arms. Veterans were highly honored, especially those who had fought in Europe or Korea. Two of my high school classmates had already died in Vietnam. No one I knew had refused to serve in the armed forces on moral grounds. What held me back from declaring myself a conscientious subjector was fear. Fear of disappointing, even angering family and friends. Fear of being blacklisted by potential employers. Fear of going into prison or exile if my application was turned down. And fear above all, of being judged a coward. If Beranger had been depicted as a heroic figure, I could not have embraced him as a guide for the choice I faced because I did not think of myself as a hero. But a drunkard and a 'er ne'er-do-well, a man given to laziness and procrastination, as Beranger was, was a figure humble enough for me to emulate in his determination to resist the crowd. I tucked the essay inside my jacket, pulled up my hood, and set out walking. My shoes and pants legs were soon soaked. Eventually, the rain let up, its patter fading like the dying away of applause after a concert, and then it ceased. I continued on through huddled streets gleaming with late afternoon light until I reached my favorite spot for brooding, a small park on a bluff overlooking the railroad yards and office towers of Providence. One of the park's attractions for me was a giant statue of Roger Williams, 
gazing out over the city, his arm uplifted in benediction. The man it commemorated had fled in the 1630s from the Massachusetts Bay Colony after being threatened with imprisonment for questioning Puritan dogma and had founded Rhode Island as a haven for others seeking freedom of conscience. I drew close to the statue, leaned against a steel fence at the edge of the bluff and watched streetlights begin to glitter block by block across the city. Alone, except for the imagined company of Roger Williams, Thomas Merton, and the fictional Frenchman, Beranger, I listened for the inner voice that the chaplain had spoken of. What I eventually heard as my mind cleared were the voices of my upbringing, the words of parents and teachers, Bible verses and favorite books. But I also heard a voice that seemed to arise from a source older than my private history, deeper than my own small self. Call it conscience, call it nature, call it God, whatever the name, whatever the source, it was compelling. I made my decision. I would forsake my first academic love and turn from physics to history, philosophy, literature, or some other field that held no interest for the Pentagon. After graduation, if called by the Selective Service, I would volunteer for civilian work as a tutor in an elementary school, perhaps, or an orderly in a hospital, whatever job they chose for me. But I would not wear the uniform of my nation's armed forces, not even in a non-combatant role. Since that first encounter with Merton's writing, I have gone on to read more than a dozen of his books, mostly from the final decade of his life, 1958 to 1968, years that coincided with my time in high school and college, when I was awakening to concerns about racism, militarism, poverty, pollution, and the nuclear arms race. Merton fervently addressed all of these matters in his books from that period. His essays on social issues were so impassioned, in fact, that his superiors at Gethsemane and in Rome directed him to keep silent about them, especially about war and atomic weapons, and urged him to confine his writing to the safe subjects that had filled most of his earlier books, monasticism, contemplation, prayer, the lives of saints, and his own spiritual autobiography. Such a withdrawal from worldly problems would have been easy in the seclusion of Gethsemane, as he observed in his journal, quote, It is absolutely true that here in this monastery we are enabled to systematically evade our real and ultimate social responsibilities. But he refused that evasion, insisting that, quote, social responsibility is the keystone of a Christian life. He would not limit himself to what he called books of piety. He kept on writing about violence, prejudice, and injustice 
circulating his work and letters and mimeographed sheets when it could not pass the censors. In 1963, the year before writing Rain and the Rhinoceros, he published an essay about the prison meditations of Father Delp, D-E-L-P, Father Delp, a Jesuit priest condemned to death by the Nazis for opposing the Third Reich. Father Delp could have avoided imprisonment and execution by keeping silent, as the great majority of German clergy did, pretending that religion had nothing to do with politics. Instead, he resisted Hitler's regime, and Merton honored him for doing so, arguing that, quote, even contemplative and cloistered religious, perhaps especially these, need to be attuned to the deepest problems of the contemporary world. The priest, the religious, the lay leader must, whether he likes it or not, fulfill in the world the role of a prophet, end quote. The role of prophet and writer were inseparable for Merton. Who am I? He asked in his journal and answered, a priest and a writer, one who has the gift of speaking intelligently, I hope. Hence, I must also think clearly and pray and meditate and when circumstances require it, speak. Among the circumstances that, required, that stirred him to write in the 1960s was the racial inequity exposed by the civil rights movement. Here again, as in his response to the Vietnam War, Merton addressed one of my own troubling concerns. My father was born and reared in Mississippi, and I was born in Tennessee. Although my family moved north when I was a child, every summer we visited my father's kinfolk in the south where I witnessed a society divided along color lines, one side privileged and the other side demeaned, as if whites and blacks were two different species rather than merely different shades of humankind. Because of those journeys and my southern birth, I felt implicated in the violent scenes displayed on television news from Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, and across the South, where blacks trying to enroll in school, register to vote, sit at a lunch counter, or ride at the front of a bus were met with hatred. Instead of supporting them, many white ministers and churchgoers scolded them for upsetting the status quo. In Faith and Violence, a book published posthumously, Merton wrote, the Christian failure in American racial justice has been all too real, but it is not the fault of the few dedicated and nonviolent followers of Christ. It is due much more to the fact that so few Christians have been able to face the fact that nonviolence comes very close to the heart of the gospel ethic and is perhaps essential to it. End quote. He was equally dismayed that so many people who identified themselves as Christians accepted without protest the threat of using nuclear weapons to annihilate our enemies. I belong to the generation of Americans who grew up under the shadow of the mushroom cloud. We practiced duck and roll drills in school, diving to the floor at a signal 
from our teacher and huddling under our desks, a maneuver that was supposed to protect us from an atomic blast. We watched civil defense films that gave instructions for building bomb shelters and for provisioning basements with bottled water and canned food. By covering the basement windows with newspaper, the films assured us we could protect our eyes from the blinding glare. No one told us that such stratagems would prove futile in the event of an all-out nuclear exchange. No one said the milk we drank in the school cafeteria was laced with strontium-90 from above-ground bomb tests or that we were inhaling radioactive dust on the playground. From the Pentagon to the classroom to the pulpit, no one admitted that stockpiling these monstrous weapons, let alone planning to use them, was insane. In Raids on the Unspeakable, a book published in 1966, the collection of essays that opens with Rain and the Rhinoceros, Merton drew parallels between our nation's methodical preparation for mass slaughter and the rational planning and implementation of genocide by the Nazis. Adolf Eichmann, one of the chief organizers of that genocide, was judged to be sane by the psychiatrist who examined him before his trial. And Merton wrote, The sanity of Eichmann is disturbing. We equate sanity with a sense of justice, with humaneness, with prudence, with the capacity to love and understand other people. We rely on the sane people of the world to preserve it from barbarism, madness, and destruction. And now it begins to dawn on us that it is precisely the sane ones who are the most dangerous. End quote. In America during the Cold War, he saw madness masquerading as sanity. Again, this is Merton. Those who invented and developed atomic bombs, thermonuclear bombs, missiles, who have planned the strategy of the next war, who have evaluated the various possibilities of using bacterial and chemical agents, these are not the crazy people, they are the sane people, the ones who coolly estimate how many millions of victims can be considered expendable in nuclear war. These were not idle worries. During the 1964 presidential campaign, when Merton was writing Rain and the Rhinoceros, Republican candidate Barry Goldwater proposed using nuclear weapons in Vietnam, and that view was echoed by former President Dwight Eisenhower. The Joint Chiefs of Staff advised President Johnson that by dropping atomic bombs in North Vietnam, near the Chinese border, we might draw China into war and be able to crush the communists with our superior nuclear arsenal. Such horrific weapons and plans were flagrantly at odds with the teachings of the Prince of Peace, yet anyone who called for disarmament on religious grounds was likely to be dismissed as unpatriotic, unrealistic, even treasonous. Most people of faith in America seemed content to join the belligerent herd, acquiescing in a culture defined by military and industrial and racial violence. 
This conformity appalled Merton. Quote, The worst error is to imagine that a Christian must try to be sane like everybody else, that we belong in our kind of society, that we must be realistic about it. We must develop a sane Christianity. And there have been plenty of sane Christians in the past. Torture is nothing new, is it? We ought to be able to rationalize a little brainwashing and genocide and find a place for nuclear war, or at least for napalm bombs in our moral theology. One can see why such passages might upset his superiors in the hierarchy of a church whose moral theology had, in the past, countenanced not only torture, but also crusades against infidels and wars against rival Christian sects. In journals from the last decade of his life, Merton revealed increasing distress about the pressures for conformity within his own religious community. Quote, In the monastery, or at any rate, Inquire, I have been forgetting how to think. And only in the past few days have I woke up to the fact that this is very dangerous. I mean, the constant habitual passivity we get into. No matter how honest the surroundings and how clean the doctrine believed in, no man can afford to be passive and to restrict his thinking to a new rehearsal in his own mind of what is being repeated all around him. End quote. His determination to escape that passivity, to think for himself, inspired his move to the cabin in the woods where he could listen to rain and bird song, to the written words of other hermits, and to his own conscience. Quote, there is no question for me that my one job as a monk is to love the hermit life in simple, direct contact with nature, primitively, quietly, doing some writing, maintaining such contacts as are willed by God, and bearing witness to the value and goodness of simple things and ways, and loving God in it all. End quote. Of all Merton's works, none has had a greater impact on me than the essay I encountered first. Rain and the rhinoceros offered me guidance at a time when I felt lost. It emboldened me to think critically about dominant beliefs and behaviors in American society and to challenge those that violated my own ethics and affections. Merton himself must have experienced such an awakening from something he had read. For in the sign of Jonas, he remarked, quote, there are times... When ten pages of some book fall under your eye just at the moment when your very life, it seems, depends on reading those ten pages, you recognize in them immediately the answer to all of your most pressing questions. They open a new road, end quote. While Rain and the Rhinoceros did not answer my most pressing questions, it did give me the courage to face them. It opened a road that led from the self-preoccupation of youth to an adult concern for the well-being of others. It spoke to my dismay about the contradictions between the teachings of the gospel as I understood them and the conduct of many self-professed Christians, in particular 
their embrace of racism, militarism, and consumerism, their neglect of the poor, and their seeming indifference to the devastation of earth. It affirmed my reverence for nature, my sense that wildness is the divine creative energy flowing through every atom and cell and star. Today, half a century after that first reading, I feel less sanguine about the rain. I still recognize that wind and clouds and precipitation obey the laws of physics, not our wishes, but I no longer imagine that rain is impervious to our actions. Sulfur and nitrous oxide released from coal-fired power plants turn rain acidic, poisoning lakes and vegetation. Radioactive particles spewed into the air from accidents at nuclear power plants, such as those at Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima, fall back to earth in raindrops. By burning fossil fuels, clearing forests, plowing up carbon-rich soils, and raising methane-generating livestock, we have altered the chemistry of Earth's atmosphere in a way that traps more heat. A warming atmosphere produces more extended droughts and more violent downpours, turning arable lands into deserts and forests into tender for wildfires, burying villages in mudslides, displacing more and more of the world's poorest people by rising sea levels and floods. Merton did not live to witness how thoroughly we have tainted the rain. He died in 1968, just as scientists were beginning to document the damage from acid rain. And as the average global temperature, which had crept upward since the onset of the Industrial Revolution, was beginning to rise more steeply. Well before his death, however, he noticed other ways in which humans were despoiling our planetary home. He saw evidence of the damage in Kentucky hillsides stripped of trees, heard it in the roar of chainsaws and tractors clearing more of Gethsemane's land. He learned with dismay that pesticides were poisoning birds. He agonized over the ravaging of the Vietnamese people and countryside by American bombs, including napalm. Most alarming of all, he perceived in the escalating arms race a threat to all life on earth. The military jets that Merton heard cruising overhead signified more than preparation for war. They signified the industrial order with its scorn for natural limits, its assault on land and sea and sky, its harnessing of technology to serve human appetites. Quote, Perhaps our scientific and technological mentality makes us war-minded. We believe that any end can be achieved from the moment one possesses the right instruments, the right machines, the right technique, end quote. The hubris that has led us to devastate our home planet now prompts us to imagine we can continue our plundering and pollution by employing even more grandiose technology by dumping powdered limestone in the oceans to counter acidification, by covering deserts and glaciers with reflective plastic sheets, 
by orbiting giant mirrors to reflect the sun's rays, by mining asteroids or colonizing Mars. Soon after the 1962 publication of Silent Spring, Merton wrote in his journal, I have been shocked at a notice of a new book by Rachel Carson on what is happening to birds as a result of the indiscriminate use of poisons. Someone will say, you worry about birds. Why not worry about people? I worry about both birds and people. We are in the world and part of it, and we are destroying everything because we are destroying ourselves spiritually, morally, and in every way. It is all part of the same sickness. It all hangs together, end quote. In his writings from the 1960s, Merton traced this sickness to our false sense of separation from nature and our unchecked appetite for power and possessions. His diagnosis was grounded in the teachings of Jesus and the Hebrew prophets with their stern warnings against greed and the piling up of material wealth. It drew on the Christian monastic tradition with its devotion to poverty and simplicity. And it was informed in his later years by Asian philosophy, especially Zen Buddhism. Beginning with Rain and the Rhinoceros, his work has helped me understand that our ecological crisis is at root a spiritual crisis. We abuse and exploit Earth for the same reason we abuse and exploit one another because we have lost a sense of kinship with our fellow human beings, with other species, and with our planetary home. Merton felt this kinship keenly. Here, I am not alien, he wrote from his cabin in the woods. Quote, the trees I know, the night I know, the rain I know. I close my eyes and instantly sink into the whole rainy world of which I am a part, and the world goes on with me in it, for I am not alien to it, End quote. His experience, as well as his faith, convinced him that earth and its myriad creatures, human and non-human, and the entire universe, all arise from the same divine source. Quote, the whole world is charged with the glory of God, he exulted in the sign of Jonas. The whole world is charged with the glory of God, and I feel fire and music and the earth under my feet. End quote. We are sparks of that primordial fire, notes of that music. Each of us, all of us, along with birds and butterflies, maples and monkeys, frogs, and ferns. Whatever power gave rise to the cosmos, to life, to consciousness, still infuses and sustains all things. What we call nature is simply this grand evolving flow which brings each of us into existence, bears us along, and eventually reclaims us. Knowing this vividly, as Merton did, how can we desecrate earth? How can we abuse one another? How can we keep from crying out in wonder and praise? Thank you.